The story of the unidentified flying object. In the dream, Lucius was saying, I was starving and ridden with lice. I had only the clothes on my back and a small purse of copper coins to my name. Mm-hmm, said the dream interpreter sympathetically. She continued pounding some herbs in a pestle. Her grey hair hung over her eyes and her clothes were loose and slightly ragged. But not too ragged, Lucius noticed. They looked warm and substantial enough, just artfully torn at the edges to give the appearance of being ragged. The little room in the front of the house that she had shown him into was small and dark and filled with strange items and smells. Herbs hung from the ceiling and the walls were covered in hanging garments and scraps of papyrus pinned up and dotted around the room. A small collection of stuffed animals clustered at the feet of the chair he sat in, the opposite side of a rough wooden desk from Madame herself, and a stuffed raven imperiously watched their conversation from a shelf that was full of small clay pots and very ominous-looking wax dolls. But as the slave had ushered him into that room, he was sure he had glimpsed a quite different room with its door standing open on the other side of the small courtyard, a room that was light and airy, minimally and stylishly furnished with red-cushioned couches and delicately painted walls. It was unlike anything I have ever experienced before, he said. It felt so real. It was horrible, he shuddered. I was so thirsty I tried to drink my own urine and so hungry that I ate the leather covering from my own shield and the leather straps from my armour. It seemed there was no more need for armour, for we were all surely doomed. It all sounds very unpleasant indeed, said the old woman. But why come to me? Is it not merely an unpleasant dream brought on by poorly chosen bedtime reading? Had you been reading an especially nasty passage of Homer? No one in Homer eats their own armour straps, said Lucius. And anyway, he continued, squirming a bit, there's more about it. It feels different from a normal dream. And I recognised the place. I saw a familiar statue and the streets had a familiar feel. I think it was Saguntum in Iberia. My brother lives there. I visited him once. You have a good memory to remember streets so far away, said the old woman. Lucius shrugged. I tend to remember anything connected with my brother very well, he said, and he me. We have always been very close. We're twins, you see. We even look just like each other. You are identical twins, said the old woman, putting down her pestle and giving him her full attention for the first time. Why did you not tell me this before? This changes everything. Tell me, in the dream, did you feel like you were your brother? Lucius thought about it. Yes, I suppose I did, he said. I didn't really think about it. You know how it is in dreams. You just accept whatever is happening. I don't think you need an interpreter, said the old woman. I think your brother is experiencing some terrible event, and you are sharing it with him in your dream. What makes you say that? asked Lucius, his voice catching in his throat. There have been many strange omens of late, said the old dream interpreter. My friend's sister heard a six-month-old baby shout victory in the vegetable market the other day. My brother's landlord saw an ox walk up three flights of stairs and then jump out of a window. My cousin saw a spear move of its own accord, and I heard from a friend of a friend that it rained stones over in Pekinum. And also I have heard news from friends of mine who travel across the country plying their trade and telling fortunes, that Saguntum has been under siege for the last nine months. You might have started with that bit, said Lucius. Are you sure? 
this is something that is really happening and not another second-hand report of an omen. It's really happening, she said, not unsympathetically. The Carthaginian Hannibal has brought all the forces he can muster, even his great battle elephants, to attack Rome, and he is starting by establishing a base at Saguntum. My friends haven't been able to get into Saguntum for months. What happened at the end of your dream? Lucius swallowed hard. The enemy gave them a choice. All the men could surrender and leave with two garments, or they would kill them all. The men refused to surrender, and then I woke up. "'Well,' said the old woman, "'all is not lost. "'You did not see your brother die. "'You have not seen his spirit come looking for you. "'If you are connected in your dreams, "'you would surely know if he was dead. "'But I foresee a long war ahead of us all.' "'She closed her eyes and, speaking slowly, said, "'I see those great battle elephants "'making a long journey across the high mountains.' I see a terrible battle by a beautiful lakeside, hundreds, thousands of Roman dead. I see the Carthaginian general Hannibal at the very gates of Rome. You see disaster, said Lucius miserably. Perhaps, she said. But perhaps also... But here she was interrupted by a sudden commotion outside. They could hear the sound of people shouting in the streets and sandals flapping across the cobblestones as people raced to a spot just outside the old woman's front door. Lucius and the old woman both dashed out of the house and found a huddle of people standing in the street, all pointing towards the town wall and the gate and out towards the cemetery. Following their gaze, Lucius looked and saw a group of men turning their backs on the crowd and walking away. They were wearing the strangest clothing. Their legs were covered in Persian-style trousers in shining, sparkling white. Above a shiny silver belt, they wore some kind of short tunic that stopped at the waist and was also made of the same shimmering white fabric. It looked like nothing Lucius had ever seen before. "'What's all the commotion?' he asked. "'They came from the sky,' said a little boy. "'I swear by all the gods they did! I saw ships in the sky! Shining ships! They came from them!' Lucius looked to the adults in the group for confirmation. "'I don't know about that,' said one of the men hesitantly, "'but their behaviour was very strange. "'They refused to talk to anyone, they refused to come near anyone. "'They are all carrying small silver devices that are making beeping noises, "'and they keep staring at their devices and staring at us "'and looking around them with an expression of confusion. "'And their clothes! Are they enemies, do you think?' "'The old dream interpreter shook her head reassuringly.' I don't think so, she said. They might be daimones, come to check on us and prepare us for the coming trials. But if you're worried, why not come in for a consultation? I'll throw in my dream book, half price. She returned to her office with several eager customers, rattled by their bizarre visitors following in her footsteps. Lucia stayed outside, shivering in the winter cold, watching the strange men walk away and hoping that if they were an omen, they were a good one. Four years later, and the war was not going well. Lucius had heard nothing from his twin and had felt nothing since that dream. Nothing to suggest his brother was dead, nothing to suggest he was alive. Most of what the old woman said had already come to pass. Hannibal had not yet quite made it to the gates of Rome, but he had crossed into Italy from Iberia with his battle elephants, and he had inflicted on them the worst defeat the Romans had ever known on the shores of the beautiful Lake Trasimene. 
Lucius found himself at the old woman's door once again, looking for something, anything that might tell him whether his brother was alive or dead. She had mentioned a dream book, and he wondered if perhaps his more ordinary-seeming, less obviously horrible dreams held the answer. He was about to knock on the door when he felt the weight of his purse, or the lack of weight of his purse, and changed his mind. This war was bad for business unless your business was in the making of armour, and even the small amount of money needed for a dream book seemed an extravagant expense. As he walked away, he heard the old woman calling his name down the street. "'Lucius, I thought I saw you there,' she said. "'Come on in, sit down, it's been a while. Tell me what's on your mind.' "'It's all right, it's nothing,' said Lucius awkwardly. "'Oh, come now,' tutted the old woman. "'We are living in interesting times, my friend. It is never nothing. "'Do you know some of the omens I have heard tell of lately? "'My niece's uncle-in-law saw a young green vine shoot burst into flames. "'My friend's best friend saw the river Manicius at Mantua run the colour of blood, "'and I heard it even rained blood in Rome itself. "'At Carly's, my cousin's slave tells me, it rained chalk.' My brother's nephew saw a spear belonging to a statue of Mars move of its own accord and my friend's sister heard an ox talk. My cousin's friend actually heard the voice of a child speak while it was still in the womb. Great things are happening, Lucius, my friend. Lucius waved in a way that he hoped was friendly but dismissive and started walking towards the town gate, thinking that perhaps a walk in the countryside would clear his head. I'll think about it, he told the old woman as he went but his words were swallowed in a sudden outpouring of noise and commotion from all around him. The old woman, her door slave, everyone in the street had stopped to stare up at the sky. And well they might, for floating above the edge of town was a great grey altar. It was oval and rounded, with only three short stubby legs, and it was smoother than any altar Lucius had ever seen. Standing all around it, floating up in the sky, were the same men as before, they wore what at first looked like white robes, but on closer inspection turned out to be the same strange clothes they had been wearing before, with their loose trousers of shining white and their billowing white shirts. They also wore the same slightly puzzled expression as they had before as well. There was a general commotion and much shouting and swearing and threatening the men if they had some kind of attack in mind. But at that point, Lucius caught sight of something closer to Earth, and all thoughts of the strange shining men in the sky fell from his mind. A figure had stumbled through the town gates from the cemetery. It was thin almost to the point of starvation, dishevelled, hair matted and outgrown, but it was human. The resemblance between them was no longer so strong as it had been, but Lucius had no difficulty recognising his own brother. He ran to him and embraced him gently as he feared the man's bones might break, but firmly. He held him so long that by the time they drew apart, the men and their strange sky altar had disappeared. How? exclaimed Lucius at last, delight shining in his eyes. I am a coward, my brother, croaked Marcus. I wanted to live. I disguised myself and snuck out of the city. I've been making my way back here, scraping a living and avoiding the war ever since. I don't care, said Lucius, embracing him again. I love you. Come home. We've worked out what went wrong, sir, Chris saluted smartly, and he and Michelle approached the captain's desk. They were twins, Michelle explained enthusiastically, wiping the sweat off her palms on her shiny silver jumpsuit. 
We were tracing the DNA of the Roman period bones we found, thinking it would lead us to Saguntum. But they were twins. Their DNA is the same. We followed the wrong twin. Of course, said the captain, glancing briefly over their report. Chris, tell navigation to lay in a new course and go back four years. Forget the DNA tracing. We'll have to do this the old-fashioned way. I'm sure a heavily fortified city under siege will be hard to miss anyway. The Department of Historical Studies will be relieved, sir, said Chris. Research projects based on time travel are expensive to fund. Yes, Ensign, said the Captain Riley. As the person who put in the funding application, I was rather aware of that. Blushing from the tips of his toes to his receding hairline, Chris headed to the bridge to talk to navigation. The end. Welcome back to Creepy Classics. I'm Juliet Harrison. This is the podcast retelling and discussing ancient, medieval and early modern ghost stories with episodes out every two months. Bit of a change of pace for this one. As you will have noticed, it's not a ghost story. Um, in this case, we're looking at urban legends more broadly. Uh, it was a bit of a weird coincidence because I had decided I was going to look at UFOs um, for the podcast way back in January when I started planning this episode, uh, only for UFOs to end up in the news unexpectedly because balloons and other objects kept appearing over America and suddenly UFO sightings are going up. Uh, so that was quite a weird coincidence. That's probably the creepiest bit of this month's creepy classics. So this story of ancient UFO encounters comes from Livy's History of Rome, Livy was an historian writing in the 1st century BCE. He wrote during the reign of the Emperor Augustus. And he wrote this massive history of Rome, which was, uh, like it sounds like, it was a history of the city of Rome and the Roman Empire, the Roman world, uh, from its earliest beginnings. Unfortunately, most of it has been lost, but we do have a couple of substantial chunks uh, that have survived, particularly the first few books detailing the very early history. So... When we're looking at the first few books of Livy, we're looking at myth, not history. Um, he's telling the story of Romulus and Remus and all that kind of thing. So it sort of edges more toward history as it goes along. Uh, but it starts out with the, the founding of Rome and Romulus and Remus. And we have that bit. And we also have a substantial section telling the story of the Second Punic War, which is where this bit comes from. Uh Livy, as I say, is writing 1st century BCE. The Second Punic War took place in the 3rd century BCE. So Livy is writing a good couple of hundred years after these events. Um, obviously, from a modern point of view, nothing in Livy is terribly reliable. As ancient historians, we're used to relying on things written hundreds of years later. Sometimes we have to. Livy would have had access to earlier historians whose work has since been lost. So we assume that he wasn't completely making it up or anything. He did have access to sources um, telling these stories from earlier periods of Roman history. Um, we don't have those sources. We just have Livy himself, uh, depending on which bit we're looking at. Um, there are various bits of Livy that we have other sources for. They sort of come in and out. <laughs> These stories are taken from lists of omens. So um, during this section telling the story of the Second Punic War, at the end or beginning of each year, um, Livy will say, here are the omens and prodigies that were seen in that year. And all of the omens that 
I have my dream interpreter report, second, third, fourth hand, um, are all from Libby. Uh, and that is where these UFO stories came from as well. They are all um, collections of omens and prodigies that were said to appear in that year. And I should point out that Livy does not believe a word of it. He's very, very sceptical. He says, oh, people said that these things happened and they were seen out in the countryside. And he makes some snobby comments about how people in the countryside are just superstitious and believe anything. And it's a tradition going right back to the Greek historian Herodotus, the father of history, who recorded all sorts of weird stuff. And sometimes Herodotus quite specifically says, I'm not sure about this. I don't think I believe this, but this is what people told me. And Livy takes a similar approach where he says, this is what they say. These are the stories. Obviously, he's, he's writing many, many centuries later. But he says, this is what people say. And he's very clear that he doesn't think there's anything in it at all. But he's kind of in the interests of completeness, uh, noting down, this is what people said were happening. Um, so I cut it down a bit. <laughs> I didn't include all of the omens he included from each year, but I, I uh, sort of picked out the most interesting ones. I included the reign of chalk in the second batch um, because that relates to a, a UFO phenomenon um, with, with uh, silver rain or strands of silver from the sky um, falling down. Uh, this is a phenomenon that is sometimes connected with UFO sightings. So... <laughs> I am by no means an expert in UFOs. I absolutely adored the X-Files growing up. <laughs> um, I was always more into the paranormal ones, the, the ghosts and telekinesis and that kind of thing. But obviously watching a lot of the X-Files, <laughs> I watched a lot of UFO stuff. Um, I absolutely loved that show. I had pictures of Mulder stuck on my pencil case. And me and I used to go around to my best friend's house because she had Sky so I could watch it. Um, obviously UFOs as in a flying object that is not identified, um, are reported various times and places throughout history. Um, naturally, they are reported much more commonly after Roswell 1947. Uh, I have been to the museum at Roswell, um, which is very fun. <laughs> it has models of aliens and models of spaceships. Um, and it also has uh, some copies of uh, ancient Near Eastern texts, which the museum is like, oh, these are ancient UFOs. And I was there with a friend of mine who is an ancient Near Eastern scholar who was looking at it going, oh, no, uh, no, 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 they are not reading these right. <laughs> um, it's very entertaining. If you're ever near Roswell, there isn't much near Roswell, that, that is kind of the point. But if you happen to be in the area of Roswell, New Mexico, um, it is a, the museum is good fun. Uh, albeit possibly not quite the same level of reliability of evidence that you might expect from a normal museum. Um, but uh, the fact remains that various weird phenomena in the sky are reported throughout history. And sometimes this includes reports of uh, things that seem like orbs uh, and things like that. There's a reference in the story, um, the dream interpreter says, oh, they might be daimones. Uh, so daimones, I've probably talked about before, these are um, divine beings. They exist in between mortals and the gods. Um, they're kind of spirits, divine spirits. They give their name eventually to demons because Christian theology kind of divides the these kind of immortal, but not gods, beings into angels and demons. Uh, but the Greek 
does not have the con connotations of, of demon. Um, they're not evil. <laughs> they're positively good most of the time. Um, they are just spirits. I built the story around these visits to a dream interpreter, partly because that was just the way the story developed and also because I have quite a bit of expertise in dreams and dream interpreters, so that was handy. Um, dream interpreters were not very respected in the Roman world. Um, it was quite different in classical Greece, where they were very respectable and quite important. In Rome, they weren't respected. Um, the job of interpreting an important dream sent by the gods would fall to members of the elite, particularly the augurs. Um, Roman elite males uh, with this part-time priesthood. So Roman priesthoods are part-time jobs for elite men, basically. Um, and the augurs are the ones um, in charge of interpreting auspices. So chances are, if you are an elite Roman male, and these are the people writing our texts, uh, then you would be either interpreting your dream yourself, or you might ask a friend who's an augur, maybe. Um, so they mention dream interpreters, but they hardly ever describe them in detail. Uh, the poet Propertius mentions an old woman, so that's where I got my older woman from. And he talks about uh, his girlfriend going to the dream interpreter himself, going to the dream interpreter in the same context as going to witches, doctors and fortune tellers. So that's why I've made my uh, dream interpreter uh, an older woman who's also kind of working as a witch and a fortune teller. I gave her wax dolls in her room, which is uh, part of ancient witchcraft. Um, they're essentially, we call them voodoo dolls. Imagine inverted commas around the word voodoo because it's nothing to do with Haitian voodoo. Um, but the same principle that you do something to a doll and it does something to the person. The wax ones, they would activate by melting. So you make a wax doll of somebody and then you melt it to curse them. Um, and that's why I put that in her little sort of office. <laughs> I was implying that she kind of works as a dream interpreter and a witch and a fortune teller and sort of multitasks. I also included a reference to her having a dream book. Uh, we have a dream book from uh, the Roman Empire from 2nd century CE written by uh, a man called Artemidorus. So some of them would have been men. I'm assuming dream interpreters could be either gender, to be honest. Uh, so Artemidorus is obviously <laughs> a man and presumably worked as a dream interpreter. Uh, and he wrote a book and it's basically if you've ever walked into a shop, um, particularly a shop with kind of incense sticks and crystals and... Um, candles. I love these shops. Um, I spend lots of time in them because I love scented candles and incense. Um, that kind of shop. <laughs> and there'll usually be um, a shelf of like how to interpret your dreams or the dream bible or the meaning of dreams, you know, that kind of thing. And it'll be like, oh, if you dream about a frog, it means this. And if you dream about uh, your sister, it means this, you know, that kind of thing. And that's what Artemidorus's book is. It's the same thing. Um, we also have one from ancient Egypt and we have one from the ancient Near East as well. Not from Greece, interestingly, although we do have a medical text talking about the meaning of dreams from classical Greece. Artemidorus is Greek. He's just living in the Roman period. He wrote in Greek. So uh, that's what the dream book is. I'm, I basically gave my dream interpreter a, a publication she was trying to sell. Uh, and I'm assuming that Artemidorus worked as a dream interpreter um, and then wrote this book <laughs> to go along with that work. He talks quite a lot about how there's loads of books like that and his is the best. Um, that His is more accurate than anybody else's, but he makes reference to how many there are. So obviously there were lots of them around. Um, we just don't have them. I also made a brief reference to seeing the spirit of somebody who's just died in the sense that my main character hasn't. 
that's a very well-known ghost phenomenon. Um, people see uh, the ghost, well, well, they see an image of somebody, you know, a loved one, and then they find out that the person died at around that time. Uh, Wilfred Owen's brother, the poet Wilfred Owen, said he saw Wilfred Owen, his brother, um, around the time that he died, um, when they were very far apart. Um, so that's a pretty common um, say phenomenon among uh, ghost sightings and, and ghost folklore. So I just kind of threw that in there as a an indication that his twin hadn't died, basically. Um, twins in the Roman world were thought of as signs of divine favour. Uh, of course, Romulus and Remus, the founders of Rome, are twins. Um, so twins were thought to be very good fortune. Um, they, they were special. Uh, multiple births. Uh, beyond twins were um, more of a, a worrying sign um, and unusual births in general were usually considered some kind of omen or prodigy uh, a lot of the time sadly they were thought of as a bad omen but in the case of uh, twins they were considered to be a good omen so this story is set during the second punic war uh, the second of three <laughs> the first punic war is 264 to 241 bce the second is 218 to 201 and the third is 149 to 146. Uh, these are a series of wars between carthage and rome carthage is what is now uh, tunis um, in tunisia that's where ancient carthage is uh, eventually Rome came out victorious from the three wars uh, and there was a story that they had sowed the ground of Carthage with salt so that no crops would grow there again. Um, one of my colleagues disappointed me several years ago by telling me, no, that's not true. It's just a story, which was very sad because it was a good story. Um, probably partly because Carthage is it's on the Mediterranean. It's not in the Sahara Desert, but it is obviously on the North African coast. So maybe the Romans thought that was why things didn't grow. I don't know. The Second Punic War is probably the most famous because it is the one where the Carthaginian forces were led by the general Hannibal, um, the one who famously brought elephants all the way up through Spain, over the Alps and back down through Italy again, although I think not very many of the elephants actually survived <laughs> to get to Italy. Um, the siege that uh, Lucius's twin brother has got caught up in was the siege that started the Second Punic War. Uh, it was the siege of a town called Saguntum in Spain, um, where Hannibal uh, eventually took over Saguntum so that he could make that his kind of base of operations um, for the war. Nine-month siege uh, eventually ended with Hannibal uh, taking it over. Uh, there is an epic poem from the first century CE written by Silius Italicus called Punica, and he has a description of the siege of Saguntum, uh, which is fairly lengthy, and I just took a couple of elements from that. Um, the bit about eating the leather straps from your armour comes from Silius Italicus. Uh, whether he kind of had access to other historical sources beyond Livy, um, he probably had access to some other histories. How much of the history he incorporated into his poem, you know, it's historical fiction, so hard to say. Um, but it's quite a vivid description uh, of various heroic deaths because of course all the men ended up dead um, because they refused to surrender uh, except my uh, my protagonist's brother managed to escape um, but yeah it's uh, well worth a look um, as a description of um, of that war uh, and particularly of Saguntum even if it's not you know accurate so there are various reports of unidentified flying objects in ancient sources. Um, there's a lot of reports of things like torches in the sky, fire, flaming balls, lots of things get struck from the sky, presumably by lightning. 
And presumably a lot of these are referring to things like comets, ball lightning, sheet lightning, all that kind of thing. Livy records a few um, weird objects in the sky. Uh, in addition to the ones here, he mentions round shields seen in the sky in 217 BCE, um, which would be the year after the first of the ones in the story. Uh, and in the same year, two moons rising in the daytime. There is a report from Josephus Jewish Wars from the first century CE. This one is quite interesting because Josephus is presumably an eyewitness, whereas Livy is recording things from hundreds of years earlier that have, you know, so-and-so said that this happened. Um, Josephus fought in the Jewish Wars and then he wrote a history of it. Afterwards, he um, defected to the Romans um, and was eventually uh, freed by the Emperor Vespasian because he predicted Vespasian become emperor before it happened. And uh, he wrote a history of the wars. And he says at one point, chariots and armed battalions were seen hurtling through clouds in the sky. So that one's interesting. That one's definitely a lot closer to events <laughs> than Livy. Um, there is also uh, a very late source, uh, the Book of Prodigies by Julius Obsequens, which is 4th or 5th century CE. Um, this is what it says. It is a, a, a list of prodigies and omens. They're mainly taken from Livy. Um, it includes some from lost sections of, of Livy and they're mainly taken from these lists Livy provided for each year of prodigies from that year. Julius Subsequens includes weapons seen in the sky in 154 BCE, statues falling from the sky in 140 BCE, javelins falling from the sky in 106, and according to him, in 100 BCE, an orb similar to a shield seemed to be borne across the sky. Um, and various um, websites talking about UFOs uh, cite Julius Obsequens as the oldest um, source for UFO sightings. Uh, obviously, that's not the case because he is taking his stuff from Livy and we have some of Livy's <laughs> uh, reports. So Livy is probably the oldest, in fact. So <clears throat> I um, dug up the references for most of these from an article um, in the Classical Journal by Richard Stothers, who was an astronomer who sadly passed away in 2011. He worked for NASA um, as well as for Harvard University as a researcher and wrote an article on unidentified flying objects in classical antiquity. Now, obviously, he means uni unidentified as in unidentified, not as in aliens. <laughs> um, but uh, basically, he's looking at uh, reports of astronomical phenomena and trying to work out what is this phenomenon that is getting reported. Uh, so he um, went through uh, all the kind of ancient reports of sightings that are similar to modern UFO reports um, and sort of had a look through them. I also had a look at an article by V. Dason uh, on multiple births in ancient Rome. Uh, this was in a book. Uh, the book is called Hoping for Continuity, Childhood Education and Death in Antiquity in the Middle Ages, edited by, I'm going to uh, not be able to pronounce these names, uh, K. Mustakalio, J. Hansker, H. L. Sinio and V. Volanto. I apologise for my pronunciation of everyone's names. And then on dreams and dream interpreters and dream books, um, you can have a look at my book, uh, Dreams and Dreaming in the Roman Empire, um, which is my monograph that came out back in 2013 and is still available. Uh, Kindle or paperback or hardback, but don't pay for hardback. It's ridiculously expensive. The, the Kindle or the paperback are more reasonably priced. <laughs> 
You can read the sections of Livy that deal with the Second Punic War uh, in Penguin Classics, uh, translated by Aubrey de Selincourt uh, under the title The War with Hannibal. Um, this story is taken from sections 21.62.5 and 24.10.10. Or for free, you can read uh, a slightly older translation at perseus.tufts.edu. You can read a good modern translation of Silius Italicus's Punica online for free at poetryandtranslation.com, translated by A.S. Klein. And there's a free translation of Julius Obsequin's Book of Prodigies available at atalus.org. So, thank you for listening. Um, we will be back with more ghosts um, in uh, the end of April. In the next episode, I will go back to ghosts, but I figured it would be fun as a bit of a change of pace to have a look at a different type of urban legend from the ancient world. Creepy Classics was written and performed by Juliet Harrison. Music composed and performed by Ed Harrison. It was produced by Juliet Harrison with assistance from Newman University. <laughs>